This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 64 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Charles Bergman, a writer and photographer who sought to document all 18 species of penguin in his most recent book, Every Penguin in the World. His new book is more than just a photo book, though. It has a narrative component about his photographic mission. Now, photography and animals aren't topics we cover too much on the show, but they are legitimate features of the travel and writing landscapes. So, in addition to our conversation about conservation and penguins, we also talk about the process of developing larger book-length projects from smaller essays and stories, and we talk about how travel and literature and photography can open up new lines of inquiry and help spread awareness about important issues. We're going straight into the interview today, so while the show is free, it isn't cheap. Please consider telling your friends about the show, leaving a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com support. As ever, thanks for listening. So now, here is Charles Bergman. Well, Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Jeremy. So you are a writer, a photographer, uh, whose work has appeared in publications like uh, Smithsonian, Nat Geo, National Geographic, Audubon, and uh, Natural History, just to name a few. And you've also written uh, several books previously, and uh, now you're out with a new one called Every Penguin in the World. I was wondering if you could start things off by you know, telling us a little bit about this new book of yours. Well, every penguin in the world refers to every species of penguin. And um, my wife and I, it was one of the pleasures of this book is that uh, my wife and I were able to travel a lot together, slowly developed a kind of crazy passion for penguins. And at some point decided that we would try to see all 18 species of them in the wild. And uh, we did it. It took us many, many years. It was a, a project of real, real passion and love, and it, it was a deepening love, really. And um, did not really intend to write a book about it. The the idea of a book only came kind of late in the process, which is, I think, part of one of the reasons I like this so much. It was the book was just kind of an organic emergence out of something that we were doing for for its own sake, really. And um, so it's not not really a record of seeing all 18 species. It uses it was intentionally um, conceived of the book as a story driven book, fact friendly, but story driven and photo rich. So it has almost 100 photos in it. And I tell stories about encounters with penguins and the search for penguins. Um, and the, the stories are d- divided really into three kind of categories, adventure, conservation, and science. 
and a pilgrimage. And so it was um, just an amazing, wonderful experience, mm -hmm. set of experiences. It's a, a beautiful book. It's full color, packed with images. And what surprised me uh, about it was that, you know, I was expecting this to be a fo photo forward book. And, you know, there is a, there are a lot of photos in here. Uh, but what's a, what caught me off guard was the fact that there's just so many kind of stories here. This is a, a like a narrative uh, book about your quest to see the penguins illustrated by these just incredible photographs of, of weird penguins. So tell us, a little, <laughs> tell us a little bit about these uh, penguins. Like, um, you know, we hardly associate penguins with, you know, high adventure <laughs> and, and stuff, but you mentioned it was your passion. What, what why do you find um, penguins so interesting that you would go around the world to, to photograph and see them all? Yeah, well, they're great photographic subjects, um, partly because you can just spend time with them and really get to know individual penguins in situations. And I really love that kind of photography uh, where you really are taking photos that enable you to kind of capture something more interior to the animal itself. Um, but uh, so they're cute, you know, they're all the things that make them one of the most beloved animals in the world. They're very cute. They're, they've got charisma about them and a lot of personality. They waddle wonderfully. And they're, I think part of what's attractive about photographing them is that they are kind of inescapably anthropomorphic. And I like that about them, actually. And what I really mean about that is that they, they have, they seem to have emotions and intimate kind of encounters with each other and photographing that sort of thing is really, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of, that kind of hooked us, not so much the photography, but that quality about them, that intimate quality that you can have with them in these really amazing locations in the Southern hemisphere. So they're, they're, they're irresistible if you get going. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, a bit about their, I guess, demeanor, and there are points in the book where you discuss the act of photographing them, and it seems like, you know, if you're in the middle of, I don't know, what you would call the the the, the, the number of these penguins, like, are they a pack of penguins? What What is uh, yeah. Um, what is that? A waddle of penguins. A waddle. Of so when, when, <laughs> that's one one collective noun I've heard for them. A waddle of penguins. So when you're in a waddle of penguins, it, it seemed like uh, the penguins would find um, would be curious about you, and that would approach you and kind of stare at you in the eye. Are they are they pretty docile like that, or they're not aggressive? They're not aggressive. Um, and the different species have kind of different qualities about them. There are some species that are shy and reluctant and are harder, I suppose you could say, to photograph in an intimate way. But a lot of them, if you just position yours, just sit, sit and sit quietly, they will, they will come to you. And I love that. I love to just let them reveal themselves to me and sort of show me how they want to be photographed. And they will really do that. Um, and so you can just kind of let them be the authors of the experience. Mm. That's, that's interesting. Um, you'd mentioned, uh, the Southern hemisphere here and, you know, that's one of the things that I learned about this book, how few 
um, different how few species of penguins there are and uh, where they are kind of scattered around the planet, just in the southern part of the the hemisphere, with the exception of maybe one or two species. Right. Is that right? Yes, there's there they are a southern hemisphere bird. And all 18 occur in the Southern Hemisphere, though there is one species that has a small population precisely one half mile north of the equator. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the Galapagos penguin in the Galapagos Islands. But otherwise, they're very much a Southern Hemisphere bird. Um, they evolved in, as Antarctica evolved. Uh, and Antarctica is the only... Well, it's a, it's a continent that's separated from the rest of the planet by a circumpolar ocean, and it's the only circumglobal ocean in the world, and that effectively isolated penguins as they evolved. And those seas are rich with nutrients, and I think of the think of it this way: the seas induced the birds to quit flying and live a life fully aquatic. Um, so they're the only seabird that doesn't fly. Mm-hmm. As this uh, kind of Darwinian concept of of evolution, mm. where um, the environment doesn't necessarily kind of force the species to change, but the species adapt to conf- conform right. to the environmental factors therein. That's right, and so the the seas were rich enough to reward excellence in swimming, and the birds gradually their wings became more like flippers than than wings. And kind of on a counterpoint to that, albatross has also evolved in the same habitat, the same region. And the winds that are characteristic of this circumpolar ocean, storms emerge down there and they just go round and round the the globe because there's no landmass to dissipate their energy. So on these winds, albatrosses were able to, their wings evolved into these amazing long wind wings that are just made to live on the wind. Mm. Yeah, you do mention uh, the albatross quite a bit in the book, and I believe there's a few pictures of them, and maybe even a cormorant, the the bird with the long neck, uh, that also dives into the water, (laughs) which is kind of incredible to see uh, so many uh, different types of birds. Um, You'd mentioned something in the book, uh, I think somewhere towards the end of the book, that uh, gave me a little bit of gave me some pause and that's about um, birding and like the culture of, of bird watching. And you'd mentioned that um, birding is like learning how to see. And this struck me as, as interesting because it, well, why don't you explain what you meant by that? How, how does um, bird birding and bird watching, how does that teach us how to see? It helps you differentiate things that are coming in to your field of vision, I guess you could say, um, so that you become better able to identify things you're looking at. And it's like, it's like a window, really. Once you start doing that with birds and realize that these little that, that birds have different kind of identifying characteristics and you get good at identifying those features of them, your eyes feel like they get sharper as you look at things. And that opens up a kind of attentiveness, I guess you could say, to to the rest of the world. It's really, it's quite a remarkable thing to find yourself 
with a sharper sense of perception of, in this case, birds than you had before. And the, the effect is just to kind of open the whole world up uh, as a result. And bird watching really does that. It, may, it enables looking at the world with a greater sense of precision and clarity. Mm, yeah, I love that. You'd mentioned in the book that you, you met some, some birders when you were on your own quest who, gosh, racked up thousands of different <laughs> species, which is incredible uh, to think yeah, about. They're, they're, they're amazing. Um, there are, there's a whole community of worldwide birders whose goal is to see as many of the world's species as possible. So there are maybe nine to 10,000 species of birds in the world. And I would be on boats with birders who were, who had, had lists that were seven and 8,000 species long, which is just an amazing accomplishment. Mm. It seems like you can spend your entire life trying to track down the birds. And I was just curious, uh, how long did it take you to, to see all the 18 species of penguins? Well, from the sighting of the first penguin to, if I think of, I kind of think of it as to the end, the end of the quest was really when I saw the colony of emperor penguins, though I had already seen an emperor penguin. So technically I had already done this, but I give it a year longer. It was 17 full years. Wow. And, and so give us a sense of, of geography. You mentioned the Southern hemisphere, but they're not just in Antarctica. There are other places like South America or South Africa. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. And this is a good question. Uh, our stereotypic image of penguins is definitely against the backdrop of Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Lots of ice in in this kind of Antarctic continent. Um, and you know, it's not a it's not wrong. It's just a stereotype, and so it has kind of all the problems that stereotypes have. For example, really only two species of penguins are what you would call, strictly speaking, Antarctic birds. That is to say that they're found only in Antarctica, and that's where you'll see them. But that leaves another 16 species, and those are found, um, many of them on the little islands in the Southern Ocean, these kind of sub-Antarctic islands. There are species that are found that are found only on very particular sets of these little archipelagos. So you have to go to that particular island to find this species. And many of those are extremely remote. And some of them are found on a number of those little islands. King penguins is a great example. King penguins are beautiful penguins, big, second largest of the penguins. And they're found on South Georgia Island and Macquarie and a number of these sort of sub-Antarctic islands. And then beyond that, Africa has one species of penguin. It's uh, given our, our notion of Africa and, and the wildlife of Africa. Penguins don't usually fit in people's notions of African right. wildlife. <laughs> uh, and um, so there are several species in South America and several species in Oceania, that is to say New Zealand or Australia. Um, and there are actually penguins which occur in deserts. And there's a penguin on the equator. So these are sort of stereotype busting birds. Uh, and I think that's important and useful to be aware of. Mm -hmm. 
an environmental thread runs throughout much of the book and um, from through much of your your other work. And can you give us a sense of, you know, how endangered these birds are um, as a as a as a group of birds? Well, yes, I'm happy to do that. And um, it's one of the reasons we decided to do this to try to help spread some word about the conservation of penguins. Um, Of the 18 species, 10 are currently listed formally as endangered or in imminent danger of extinction. That's already over half. Another four are listed as what's called near threatened, which means if current trends continue, it won't be long before they're on the endangered list as well. And so uh, the simple way to put it is of the 18 species, most species are declining in population, some rapidly and some already really close to extinction. And the ones that aren't probably have a high likelihood that they will in the future. So it's, it's a very sobering thing. And it's one of the questions really in the book is if you, if we can't say penguins, which is probably the most beloved species of bird in the world, everybody loves penguins. Then really what in the world can we save? Mm-hmm. Do, do we have a, I get, do we have an understanding of, you know, the mechanism of the decline? Like, is it, is it the like the ice melting? Is it the food? Is it the um, food source um, diminishing? What what is the reason for their decline specifically? Yeah, I think of it as kind of two different categories of causation and problem. One one is sort of old fashioned <laughs> environmental problems. I chuckle as I say that because. I, one's almost nostalgic for the old kind of problems <laughs> these days, you know, where there's single point issues like right. African penguins are in, a, in, in conflict with human fisheries around South Africa. And um, the same is true with um, the birds in Patagonia, the penguins in Patagonia. Uh, they have they run into just real problems with human fisheries, which are getting more and more intense in the Southern Ocean and the Southern Hemisphere as fisheries throughout the world collapse more broadly. Um, So yeah, fisheries is a big problem. And so are problems with oil spill and ocean pollution Hmm. from ships, you know, disgorging waste and of various kinds in the oceans. But the thing is, you know, a lot of progress has been made. Biologists, ecologists, activists have been working hard on these issues. And, and uh, you know, there's a real effort to develop what you would have to think of as sustainable fisheries in the Southern Ocean. But then there's this second category of problems, which is becoming more and more uh, acute. And it's all related to global climate change. Mm. And, you know, this is much more difficult to kind of pin down, obviously, and kind of invisible and happens at, you know, really great removes so that what we're doing in North America has a direct influence on things that happen in the habitat of creatures in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, the African penguins a good example of this. It, it, the reason there are penguins in Africa is there's a, 
uh, a current of cold water that comes up from the Southern Ocean called the Bengala Current. And it sort of brushes the southern tip of Africa. And that's where the penguins are. And then it's, it's, they're sustained by that cold water current and the fish associated with it. But the oceans are heating and that current is shifting to the south and to the east. And it's shifted some 200 miles already away from where it had been. So these penguins, which are breeding on islands off the coast of South Africa, have to swim farther and farther to get fish to bring back to their babies on the islands. And this is just really difficult. And of course, what's happening is that these chicks are having trouble getting enough food and they wind up malnourished mm. and undernourished. And, and we wound up a lot of what we did when we spent time on, uh, on the islands working with these penguins was rescuing underfed, undernourished chicks and taking them to um, seabird rehabilitation in Cape Town to get them triage really so they could be re-released. It's, it's really a pretty sad phenomenon. And, and the African penguin is one of the very most endangered. It's declined in the last century by about 95%. Wow. Doesn't yeah. look, uh, looks grim. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book, I think somewhere it's, it's been a few since I've read it, but you, you mentioned that there were some populations of penguins that were moving from their, I guess, traditional habitat mm -hmm. and re, I guess relocating to different areas. And it's, it's kind of a puzzle as to, to why that shift is, is happening. But it seems here you're saying that, you know, we can directly kind of correlate the, the locations of the penguins with the food sources and the currents and, you know, the habitats that they're chasing essentially. Yeah. That's right. That's with the, I was talking about that in particular with the uh, Magellanic penguin in Patagonia, um, huge colonies in, in Northern Patagonia around the uh, uh, Valdez Peninsula, half a million penguins at one point about 20, 25 years ago. And that's down some 30% and they are on the move. And you're right. Biologists think that it's directly related to searches for food sources that are shifting as well as the ocean shift. What they don't really understand, they can, they have a kind of sense that, that they're moving for, to, to have better access to fish, but they don't really understand well how they choose new sites to form colonies, which I think is an interesting kind of problem issue to be studying. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, so you mentioned the studying question here and I got to ask you, um, you have a, you seem to know a lot about, penguins um and you know you've dedicated a good part of your life um to to nature conservancy and those types of uh, questions but you also have a phd in renaissance literature right <laughs> you taught english at a university in the pacific northwest so how does one go from petrarch to penguins <laughs> what, what... i love it i love it i know and, and um it's 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 not an obvious uh, path <laughs> to, to move from 16th century poetics, which is what my dissertation was on, 16th century English poetics, including background in Petrarch, <laughs> to <the> penguins <laughs> and all 18 species. And uh, I, the, the simple way to answer that is I had taught at a university that 
believed in finding vocation and they gave quite quite a wide latitude toward in my case the kind of evolution of a career set of career interests that weren't exactly what i had been hired to teach primarily and so i was able just to follow a passion and uh, and it began with things like writing about wolves and swans in North America and spotted owls and that sort of thing and became global in scope. And um, I also did kind of a background of this. I, I began over the course of the years to take students. We had a one month study away. We had a one month semester in January and I used that as study away opportunity and began taking students to different places in the world and putting literature in direct conversation with experience. So for example, I taught Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in the Drake Passage with albatrosses oh, cool. flying around the boat. Yeah. And love putting these kind of literary expressions of an animal with a kind of literal animal. And it's very powerful. It's very, very powerful to read Darwin in the Galapagos, for example or Coleridge in, uh, in, in the Drake Passage and in Antarctica. And so that became part of it. Students were definitely attracted to these courses and that enabled me to kind of keep pursuing this passion in another way because it had a direct benefit to the university. So when you said the university was interested in, in, in or, or vested in, um, what, what I didn't get is whether when you were saying that the university was interested in people finding um, their vocation what was if that was for the professors or for the students and it seems like here it's it's both it's both it yeah. was both very much so and that's partly I know you have an interest in pedagogy and the way literatures and the humanities are received in in the culture broadly and in the mm-hmm. academy more particularly um, yeah. I feel like, um, I, was, I mean, I taught Shakespeare through my whole career and love teaching Shakespeare. Um, but part of the challenge in teaching any of the humanities and certainly to, especially poetry is um, kind of creating a motivate a demonstration of the kind of place it can have in the lives we lead, the power it can have. And I felt like I was able, by doing this kind of teaching, by locating literature in the moment, in the locus uh, that gave it that gave it birth, to to give it a kind of impact on the students and a kind of demonstration that it could shape their lives in certain ways or open up certain life questions and become part of their lives, that um, that made it its own its own justification. So. Albatrosses became this kind of mind-boggling, mind-altering, life-changing experience for a lot of my students, as did penguins. Mm-hmm. And here we can extend that uh, metaphor, I think, to not just reading poet poetry and and literature, but also for for travel in general. It seems that uh, you know when you read with a purpose or with a sense of relevancy, um, and you travel with a sense of purpose and a sense of relevancy. Revel- you know, the, the rewards are immeasurably, you know, better, higher, choose any metric. Yeah. Well, you know, I took students, for example, to um, Tanzania 
And we flew to Lake Mahale, or we flew to Lake Tanganyika to a place called Mahale, which is where a lot of reasons, very close to Gambia, where Jane Goodall did her research on chimpanzees. And we read about chimpanzees while we were there and then went out, you know, on treks to see them. And one of the students said to me after we saw our first chimpanzees, we were walking on a trail and they just came walking down the same trail toward us. It was, it was, <laughs> it was mind boggling to see, to see them because they were, there was just something so recognizable about them as in our relationship to them, you know, over the many millions of years of evolution, but there they were, and we were on the same trail encountering each other. And one of the students afterwards said, you know, I read Jane Goodall, I read all this stuff, but I didn't really get it till we saw them. And there's something about that that has that statement of the way it works. It's just really meant, meant something to me. So that works for both getting it with regard to the chimps and getting it with regard to the people studying or writing about them as well. Mm -hmm. I really love that. Yeah, that's great. It's a, an experience that no doubt they will never forget. But as an educator, you know, it's those moments that, you know, just give you goosebumps, right? That yeah, stay with they really you. do. They really, really do. I told you, uh, so I said I wouldn't keep you for for much uh, for very long, but I had um, one one last question that I wanted to to ask you about, and um, this is a question dealing with um, kind of writing projects and and these kind of grand these bigger projects. Um, I, I think you mentioned in the book, and please correct me if if I'm not getting this right. But I think you mentioned in the book that um, this new book kind of developed out of a uh, an essay that you wrote for another publication. And so um, I'm just wondering, you know, at what point does, does one realize or know that an essay could become a larger project, a life project? Yeah, it's a good question. It really is a great question. And um, in this case, yeah, I wrote, I'm, we had seen all 18 species and I wrote a, wrote a story about it for a magazine that's read by bird watchers. And it was, it, I guess it, that made me, it was in writing that story, 2,500 word story that I realized that this would be a natural for a kind of, for a book. Um, and I think partly it was because I loved writing that. I loved writing that story so much. It almost wrote itself. It was just really fun to write. And it seemed, I loved the idea that there was this travel quality to it. And there was this larger trajectory of trying to see all 18 that was informed by the smaller trajectories of just looking for the individual species. And when it kind of broke down in my mind that I re realized I wanted to write about stories that had, that were primarily stories of adventure and then stories about learning more about the actual creature in the world. And then the final section about a kind of pilgrimage that these were, these creatures spoke to some kind of internal quest that I seemed to be on as well. That I, that it became clear to me that this was a book and, 
there's something about the kind of organic discovery of a book in something that I had already been doing, as opposed to trying to find an idea for a book and then figure out how I would do it. Right. That I really liked. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But um, I have to ask, you just mentioned this internal quest that you were were going on. Um, If you could elaborate on that point a little bit. Right. Um, The way I began to think about it was that we had talked about birding as a way of seeing, Mm -hmm. kind of clarifying what you're looking at. And I realized that there are a couple other ways of seeing that um, are very important to me. And I think partly the result of my humanistic background, my background as a humanist. And one, uh, first I began... I really wanted to see more deeply into the animals, not just identify them, but kind of see into them. And for scientists, and really, I suppose, the paradigm that we have for animals in the modern world, the danger there is a kind of anthropomorphism. Mm. But I was willing to take that risk, partly because um, there's enough research going on to suggest that, that animals are have richer inner lives than we've given them credit for. But then, and then this really emerged for me with greater clarity by reading Humboldt, Alexander von Humboldt, and the great traveler of the early 19th century, especially through South America. And his notion was that there is, you know, there's this external world, but there's also, it's not really fully comprehended unless you can sort of begin to comprehend it through poetics is the way he thinks of it, or from within. That the, And the way I think of it is that the external world also reflects, at certain moments especially, an internal world of our own. And that's how this idea of a kind of pilgrimage emerged, of seeing with the, um, the way I put it in the book, is seeing with the eyes of the heart. And so... That got, in a way, that gets you around anthropomorphism because the idea is not really projected into, but the way they project to us and come speak to our, our feelings about them, how we feel about animals. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, you know, I, I was visiting your, your website and, you know, you have beautiful images there. Um, some I recognize from the book, um, some on your photo gallery and, and your blog. You can really, as, as you mentioned here, see into the eyes of the heart. Um, um, see, sorry, see with the eyes of the heart. Um, you know that in, in terms of taking those those fit those photographs are just lovely, and you know they're not kind of like like a sterile snapshot. You're really trying to seems like to me you're really trying to understand these creatures. Um, yeah. with, with the pho- photography, they're just beautiful images. Uh, what well, that's, can I just say that's exactly right, that for me, photography became a way of knowing um, that I, what a part of the one thing I really like about it in a way, it's as, it's as remarkable for me as part of my career as the evolution into writing about natural history is that the photograph, you take a photograph and it, if it's done well, it just is its own sort of statement. So I don't really have to. There's a photograph in the book of two king penguins walking down, who've been walking down a beach. And the whole way they walked down the beach, they were really 
flipper to flipper. And it was like they were holding hands if they had had hands. And they kept that. And I, there was no doubt in my mind it was intentional. And I love, there's a photograph of them on Macquarie Island. And I like it because you don't even have to make the argument. The photo just is like its own statement. There's something going on here. You can almost, if it's done right, you can feel something of what they might be feeling. And that's, that's the goal. That's incredible. Well, thank you uh, for spending the time with us today. And can I just say that the the rockhopper penguin is my favorite? <laughs> you certainly can. <laughs> you certainly can. They're good for good reason. They're delightful. They're sweet-faced and they have beautiful ruby red eyes. And they're just, they're amazing, by the way, as well, that they, they can really literally hop up cliffs it's 500 feet they'll hop up almost vertical cliffs uh, using their toes their claws on their feet to get toehold in the in the rocks and they're just astonishing and they have these great grumpy eyebrows too <laughs> <laughs> well said well where can we find you and your work online um charlesbergman.com very good. We'll put notes. Uh, we'll put that link in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I've really enjoyed it. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. <laughs>